I pray that you will speak to us because it's really you that we need to hear from, not me or anybody else. As we sang in those songs, you have set us free. You did the work for us. You sacrificed for us. And all of us are dependent on you. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew chapter 11, verses 2 through 6, talks about the signs of the kingdom. It says that when John heard about the works of Jesus, that's when he asked Jesus, are you the one to come, or should we ask somebody else? There was something about the works that he heard about Jesus, the miracles that made him actually question Jesus' identity. Now, usually I just, I just um, like to explain a text. So usually I don't do a lot of things with modern, uh, modern miracles or things like that, but I thought that this would be a good topic to keep you awake. So uh, as I speak about miracles, I also don't want to leave the wrong impression. I'm not implying that everybody with faith or everybody we pray for always gets healed. Uh, you can see that I have male pattern balding, I wear glasses, and my students often remark that they think there's something else wrong with my head. <laughs> but uh, and, and on a more serious note, my wife and I have been through miscarriages and so on, so we know not everybody always gets healed when we pray. If everybody did, you know, uh, you wouldn't want me up here. You could have the Apostle Peter and so on. They'd still be around. But in any case, John heard about Jesus' deeds uh, in context. He heard about Jesus' miracles, and that's when he questioned, are you the one to come? Now, why would that make John question? Well, remember the last time that John was dealing with Jesus. He had been announcing that the, the coming one was going to baptize in the Holy Spirit and in fire. Well, there's no fire. The, the kingdom that John was announcing didn't seem to be coming. Jesus was just healing some people, doing some things like maybe Elijah or Elisha, uh, or in one case Isaiah had done. So even though he recognizes that Jesus is from God, he's now wondering if Jesus really is the, the promised one. Now, today we often have different lines of questioning. Um, when, when God does miracles, even, people question whether it's a miracle. And sometimes some things are just coincidence, some things are misdiagnosis, some things are psychosomatic. But when you get somebody who's just really hard-line about it, they'll say that any possible natural explanation, even the explanation that we don't have an explanation, but maybe someday we will, is, uh, is better than a supernatural one. Now, if a Christian advances a supernatural explanation and says, we don't have an explanation for this, but maybe someday we will, that's called God of the gaps. But if, if somebody who's a skeptic advances that explanation, somehow that's, well, we don't really have a name for it, but it's kind of like naturalism of the gaps. It kind of rigs the debate so you can't accept any kind of evidence. So what we want to look at is normal standards of evidence that we would use for other kinds of things. One reason for the skepticism, a major reason for the skepticism, goes back to David Hume. David Hume 
developed some deist arguments. He, he was condensing them in his essay. And super summarizing his argument, he says that there's no genuinely credible eyewitnesses for miracles. And so nobody who claims to be an eyewitness counts. Uh, you can see that that's kind of circular. There actually was, uh, yeah, he actually cites some miracle reports from his own time, and the way he deals with them is to say, well, we know that couldn't have happened, so why would we believe anything else? Which is kind of circular. But appeal to eyewitness testimony is what Jesus does in the case of John the Baptist. He says to John's messengers, tell John what you see and here. So we're going to look at some examples of eyewitness evidence. Epistemic methods differ from one discipline to another, but eyewitnesses are an important source of information in law, journalism, anthropology, sociology, and particularly relevant to the Gospels in history. So looking at some eyewitness claims, there was a 2006 Pew Forum survey of Pentecostals and Charismatics in just 10 countries. Now, of these Pentecostals and Charismatics, in these 10 countries alone, well, actually, it was limited to Protestant Charismatics, of these Pentecostals and Protestant Charismatics in these 10 countries alone, the estimated number that, comes, that it comes out to who claim to have witnessed or experienced divine healing comes out to around 200 million people. Now, if you... Uh, don't like Pentecostals or Charismatics. Um, also, in the same survey, they surveyed what they called other Christians, so those who, who didn't claim to be Pentecostals or Protestant Charismatics. And somewhere around 39% of them claimed to have witnessed or experienced divine healing. And that's just in 10 countries. So, although I think they chose 10 countries where there were known to be a lot of Pentecostals and Charismatics. But in any case... We're talking about hundreds of millions of people. Now, nobody would claim that all of these are actual, all of them could only be explained as miracles. Nobody would would even say that all of them were miracles. I mean, we know that many of them would not have been. But be that as it may, when you're talking about hundreds of millions of people making claims, you can't simply start from the premise that eyewitnesses don't claim miracles or credible eyewitnesses don't claim miracles. You've just got too many claims to do that. I think if Hume were around today, Hume himself would not have used that argument, which is actually kind of the basis for the modern argument where people just take for granted that miracles don't happen. I probably shouldn't be picking on Hume now that he's dead. It makes this a posthumous critique. (laughs) Just a little humor. In any case... um, China was not included in the, in the 10 countries in this survey, and yet from within the China Christian Council, which is affiliated with the official Three Self Church, a report from uh, around the year 2000 suggested that somewhere around 50% of all conversions to Christianity in the previous 20 years were due to what they termed faith-healing experiences. And from within the, the house churches, especially in rural areas, some have estimated as high as 90%. Now, there's no way to go verify exactly what percentage it is, but we're probably talking about millions of people who came to faith in Christ 
even though they had to abandon, in many cases, centuries of other traditions, folk traditions, to do that. So they weren't starting with Christian premises, but they believed that they experienced something dramatic and out of the ordinary. Now, as Jesus sends the messengers to John the Baptist, he lists various cures, and you have this in Matthew eleven five and Luke seven twenty two. Um, for those of you, uh, how many of you have heard of Q? For for the for the four or five of you, <laughs> this is this is what we usually call Q material. For those of us who, who believe in it, all right. So very early material. First example Jesus gives: the blind receive their sight. Well. Uh, he's already narrated some blind people receiving their sight in Matthew chapter 9. And this is something that he continues to do today. God is still the same today as he always has been. I found more than 300 reports of healed blindness as I was doing my research. Not all of them are equally well documented, but some of them are pretty well documented. Uh, Some of them are in parts of the world where they didn't have access to medical treatment, so we couldn't appeal to those. But um, I'm going to, uh, to stay on schedule, I'm going to skip some of these, uh, even though this is a friend of mine. I'll mention this one. Flint McLaughlin, director of Transforming Business Institute at Cambridge University, shared this one with me. He prayed for a blind man in northern India with clouded eyes. Um, I assume the clouded eyes were due to cataracts, but in any case... The man was instantly healed. This is the field where he ran in circles praising God. And uh, that night he he shared his story. And I actually got these pictures from somebody else other than Flint who was there at the time. As, As he was sharing his story, he began to weep. And they said, why are you weeping? He said, because I've always heard the sound of children, but I'd never before seen their faces. Jesus also says the disabled walk. And, of course, if if John's messengers had been with him very long, they would have seen the disabled man, the the, uh, paralytic who was let down through the roof. Actually, he was let down through the roof in Mark. Matthew is condensing the story, leaves the roof scene out. I don't know if it's just because he was against the destruction of private property or what. But anyway, um, Jesus heals the man, talks about forgiveness of sins, and the, uh, that's something that John's uh, followers would have seen. We have that today as well. Lisa Larios had reticulum cell sarcoma, the right pelvic bone. She had hip cancer. And by the time the doctors found out about it, it had metastasized. And uh, she was unable to walk. The doctors said she was going to die. Um, this was back in the 70s, and cancer treatment was not as advanced as it is today. But they said she was going to die. But the parents hadn't told her yet. Uh, All she knew was that she wasn't able to walk. They took her to a healing meeting. And whatever you think of healing meetings doesn't make a whole lot of difference in this case because nobody actually prayed for or laid hands on her. But in that atmosphere where, where people were looking to God for healing, suddenly she jumped out of her wheelchair and began running around. Um... Sometimes that could be due to adrenaline, but she wasn't physically capable of doing that. Uh, And yet, she was the one pushing her wheelchair when they went home, quite shocking her father. The testing afterwards showed that not only did she no longer have the cancer, 
But the where the cancer had eaten away her bones, her bones had been healed. That's not something that can happen naturally on its own, especially not instantly. Um, my brother Chris and I witnessed uh, something. This was when I was a young Christian, just a couple years after I'd been converted from atheism. I was helping out in a nursing home. There was a, a lady there every week. She, she would say, I wish I could walk. I wish I could walk. Barbara came every week in her wheelchair. And uh, one week, the Bible study leader, who was a seminary student, said, I'm tired of this. And he walked over to her, grabbed her by the hand, and said, in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. Now, if faith is a bias, I cannot be accused of it in this case, because I thought she was going to fall on the floor. And if her healing was due to merely psychosomatically being unable to walk, uh, her psychosomatic healing was not due to her psycho, because from the expression on her face, I'm pretty sure she thought she was going to fall on the floor too. But he walked her around the room, and from then on, Barbara could walk, and every week she'd come to the Bible study and say, I love my Bible study, I love my Bible study. Jesus also talks about lepers being cleansed. And, of course, we have the healing of the leper back in chapter 8, verses 2 through 4. And I have an account of this from uh, one, of my, one of my students at Asbury Seminary, who's now doing his, his doctoral degree at uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in, uh, in, in near Chicago in the U.S. He worked with somebody named Bari Malto. Bari Malto was a shaman but he had contracted leprosy and was cast out of his village. But one day, a couple ladies came by and prayed for him, and that night, uh, prayed for him in the name of Jesus, that night, he had a dream in which two angels came and touched his hands, and he was healed. He woke up, completely healed. He went into the village. The entire village was converted. And by the time my student got there to work with him, half the region had become Christian. And so uh, my student was very involved in the, in the teaching there. Jesus also says the, the deaf hear. And Matthew doesn't give us an example of that, or we have one in Mark. But we have a number of examples of that today. Dr. Rex Gardner, a medical doctor in his book Healing Miracles, he also wrote an article for the British Medical Journal dealing with uh, some, some healings today speaks of a nine-year-old girl who was completely deaf in, in uh, was it one ear or both ears? Anyway, she was, she was deaf. I think it was both ears. She was deaf without her hearing aid. She'd just been tested by the audiologist. She was praying, and suddenly she could hear in both of her ears. They called the audiologist. He said, this is impossible. This was due to auditory nerve damage, auditory nerve damage doesn't just go away. But he tested her again and said, I have no explanation for this, but she's completely healed. Hundreds of non-Christians have been healed of deafness in Mozambique through Christians preaching the gospel and then praying for them. And I have a number of friends who have been there and have seen it. Um, it was uh, Some of this was published, actually, in the Southern Medical Journal in... Uh, 2010, I believe, September of 2010. And there were some complaints. Some people said, well, testing conditions in rural Mozambique are not that good. 
So one of the authors of the study in a book that she wrote for Harvard University Press in 2012 gives more details in one of the chapters of the book about the healings that took place. And it's really clear that these people went from deafness to hearing and from blindness to to seeing. And Jesus also says the dead are raised. And, uh, of course, you have the account of Jairus' daughter. Well, Matthew doesn't name, name him. Uh, we get the name from, from Mark and Luke. But um, Matthew mentions that um, the synagogue ruler's daughter was healed. And actually, Quadratus, a bishop writing in the early 2nd century, points out that some of those whom Jesus raised from the dead were still alive in Quadratus' own day. I like to talk about raisings from the dead because people usually don't consider these psychosomatic. Um, John Wesley was a good was a good Anglican, uh, and well, some pe- some people back then didn't think he was a good Anglican. But anyway, he was uh, he considered himself a good Anglican. Uh, December fifteenth, seventeen forty two, uh, Mister Myrick fell sick. On December twenty fifth, he he died, as far as anybody could tell. This is in Wesley's journal, so this is a first hand account written on the day that it happened. Wesley and some others prayed for him. Mr. Myrick recovered and got better. Uh, I also have a a number of accounts from people that I've interviewed, including in my wife's country. Uh, I actually got seven accounts of this in the course of uh, three weeks. One, well, yeah, a couple of them are from Albert Besuesue and his wife. Uh, Albert Besuesue is my brother-in-law's father-in-law, so he's my in-law-in-law. Um, he, he reports that there was um, a child that was brought to him in Etumbi in the north of Congo when he was uh, planting a... Well, actually, he, he did evangelism, but his official job was as a school inspector. But they, they brought him a dead child. The child had been dead for like eight hours and asked him if he could pray because the uh, shamans hadn't been able to do anything. So he prayed, and after about half an hour, he handed the child back to them alive People in Etumbi were duly impressed, and the next time a child died, they didn't try all the other methods first. They brought the child directly to Papa Besuesue's house, but he was, he was not there. He was away inspecting schools. So they got his wife to pray. She said she was scared out of her mind, but she prayed, and that child came back to life. Exactly. And as a result, uh, a lot of people believed so I asked, do you, do you guys just uh, pray for everybody who's dead and once in a while, you know, maybe, because I thought maybe they're just misdiagnosed. He said, no, those were the only two times we ever prayed for anybody who was dead. It was just something special that God was doing in it to me. But this is the one that really got my attention, the account of Therese Magnuha. Her mother said that when she was two years old, she stopped breathing. Uh, she was bitten by a snake. She stopped breathing. There was no medical help available in the village. So her mother strapped her to her back and ran to a nearby village where a family friend, um, Coco Ngoma Moise, was doing ministry. And uh, Coco Moise prayed for Therese, and she started breathing again, and the next day she was fine. So I asked Antoinette Malambe, the mother, how, how long was it that Therese wasn't breathing? She had to stop and think, oh, to get from this village to that village, 
about three hours. Now, she told me other, other accounts of miracles, but, um, you know, as she wasn't thinking in terms of, you know, after six minutes with no oxygen, irreparable brain damage starts in. I mean, she wasn't thinking in medical terms like this miracle is bigger than this miracle or something like that. But three hours, that got my attention. I mean, it was less than the eight hours I heard from Papa Basuesue. It was less than, than uh, some other accounts that I received. But it was very interesting to me because, um, well, Therese has no brain damage, first of all. She has a master's degree. And also because Therese is my wife's sister and Antoinette Malambe in the middle is my wife's mother. So, not to doubt one's mother-in-law, but we did confirm it with Coco Moise. Or... Are these people all just misdiagnosed as dead? I found 10 people in my immediate circle who had witnessed these things, or in in one case had experienced it directly. He was the one who, um, he'd been in the morgue. Um, But anyway, I I need to um, be concise because this is really like an hour and a half presentation that's boiled down. uh, But unless we're burying a lot of people prematurely, I suspect that there was probably some sort of connection between the prayer and the raising, uh, and, and that there would be that many people in my own immediate circle strikes me as, well, if that's a coincidence that they were all misdiagnosed and they all came back to life when somebody prayed for them, then it's a remarkable coincidence of coincidences that I know so many people where this happened. Uh, we could go on to millions of witnesses could talk about nature miracles, which are definitely not psychosomatic, uh, but I'm going to skip ahead since that one isn't actually in our text. Um, Good news proclaimed to the poor also is an echo from Isaiah chapter 61. Now, what Jesus said in this passage echoes Isaiah 35 verses 5 and 6 and Isaiah 61. So these are not random acts but when he sends the message to John, he's saying, John, you know, you're, you're, you're wondering if I'm really the kingdom bringer. You're, you're wondering if I'm the one who is to come. But these things that you have eyewitness evidence for now, these are not random acts. These are signs of the kingdom. The context of those passages talks about the, the deserts blossoming with lilies, talks about a, a new heaven and a new earth. It's, it's a restoration of creation. That's the context, the restoration of God's people, the restoration of creation, the kingdom of God. And so Jesus is saying, John, the kingdom may come initially like a mustard seed. It may come initially like a little leaven hidden in a dough. It may be inconspicuous at the beginning. But what is being witnessed now is the foretaste of the promised kingdom of God. So hang in there. The kingdom comes in two stages. How many of you believe Jesus already came and that he's the Messiah? How, uh, that's half of you. How many of you, <laughs> how many of you are not going to raise your hands no matter what I ask? No. Uh, how many of you believe he's, he's going to come back to reign? Oh, more of you believe he's coming back. Anyway, never mind. Okay. So I'm not questioning your theology, but the kingdom is already not yet. The king has come. He's yet to come. We don't yet see the fullness. We don't yet see the consummation of the kingdom, but we have the foretaste of the kingdom. 
And what that means is that, no, not everybody gets healed now because then we never die. And everybody become Christians just so they could get miraculously healed and never die. That's, that's, not, that's the fullness of the kingdom. That's not now. But what happens now when God does a miracle for anybody? It's a reminder to all of us that God has not forgotten his promise. It's a reminder to all of us that there is coming a day when he'll wipe away every tear from our eyes, when all sickness and sorrow and death will be done away. It's a, it's a foretaste of, of the kingdom. For John, Jesus was a stumbling block in that way because he expected the kingdom to come in a more dramatic way. And that's why Jesus says to John, after he appeals to the witnesses, he says, Blessed is the one who doesn't stumble over me. Jesus actually was a stumbling block for a lot of people at his first coming because his first coming didn't meet the expectations for the kingdom that a lot of people had. He didn't spend his time with the powerful, with the rich, with the religious establishment, with the political establishment. Jesus came first for the broken and the lowly. He spent his time among the marginalized. He spent his time with the the poor. He spent his time with the sick to to bring healing. And when it says in in Matthew chapter 8 that he bore our sicknesses, um, it points us to the price that he paid for the sicknesses, for our salvation from sin, for the whole promise of the whole new creation, that it cost Jesus something. And so whatever gift we receive from him, we need to remember that it cost him something. As we were singing about earlier, it's, it's a great gift, and it's because he's done it. But these also point to something deeper than miracles. But By the way, uh, I have medical documentation for a number of the healings, but I didn't go into those because the text is talking about eyewitnesses, so I was, I was focusing on that. But there's something deeper than miracles, and that's the message of the cross. Because in the message of the cross, we see that even when it looks like God isn't at work, even in the midst of our deepest darkness, even in the midst of tragedy, when it seems like injustice has prevailed and evil has won, even in the midst of the darkness, the cross shows us that God is still at work to bring about his purposes. Thanks, Craig. That was really helpful. Uh, I've got a question here. Uh, Do you have thoughts on why miracles seem more prevalent in lesser developed nations? Is it more faith in man than God in developed nations? Sometimes. (laughs) Um, I think there are a number of factors that should be taken into account. One one factor is, like um, my wife and a lot of other African friends I have, they say, life in Africa is a miracle. We have to depend on miracles. You have medical technology. That's a gift from God. Make use of it. Uh, miracles may happen or may be recognized more often in Africa and some other places, but um, the maternal mortality rate in childbirth is still ten times as high there as it is in more developed areas. So God does miracles where they're most needed. 
Take, for example, the the feeding of the 5,000 in the Gospels and the feeding of the 4,000. Afterwards, Jesus says, gather up the fragments that remain. Jesus had to do a miracle or people would have gone hungry. But for their next meal, they wouldn't need a miracle. They had leftovers. Sorry if if you don't like leftovers, but anyway. um, uh, But another, another factor, I think, is that people are more open to those things elsewhere. Not only divine miracles, but, you know, all sorts of things. And part of it, I think, is the legacy of Hume. We won't, we don't even recognize all that God does because often in our culture, we'll give God thanks only if there's no other possible explanation. But God often works through nature. I mean, most of the time in the Bible, God works through nature rather than, than above nature. So, we, we need to be more grateful for, for whatever he does. And then we're, I think we're more likely to recognize it when he does something more dramatic. And also, the, the dramatic miracles. I mean, James 5 talks about praying for the sick. 1 Corinthians 12 talks about gifts of healings. But nowhere does it say they have to be dramatic. I mean, if God answers our prayer medically, or we just get better because of the natural processes in our body... That's still God's gift. But what we have in the Gospels and Acts, it's on the cutting edge of evangelism for the kingdom. God does more dramatic signs to get people's attention for the Gospel. Um, They don't always respond positively. Sometimes they respond by persecuting. But uh, in the Gospels and Acts, the, the signs are to get people's attention for the Gospel. So where the Gospel is going forth, we're more likely to see more of those and when we're sharing the gospel with, with people who don't know, you know, if they have a need, why not pray and see what God will do? It's not because of who we are. It's because who he is in the name of his son, Jesus. Excellent. So a more of a pastoral question. How do we reconcile healings that are asked for and not given? How do we fight the temptation to question why God would choose to heal some people and not others? Yeah. Theologically, I can answer the some people in terms of the kingdom being already not yet. Pastorally, why not just some people in principle, but this person and not this person? I don't know. Um, In terms of... Sometimes in the Gospels we see people refusing to take no for an answer, hanging in there despite obstacles... I think it's, it's great to continue in prayer for people, um, to support them in prayer, and see what God will do. At the same time, if God doesn't do it, faith can't be conditioned on God always saying yes. God is trustworthy, and our trust in him is based on who he is, his trustworthiness. He gives us enough as a basis to trust him. But our trust actually often grows most deeply in times of hardship. I found that in my life. I see that in the, in the Bible. Um, of course, you see it in the book of Job. Uh, I can give you examples in the Bible of people who weren't healed, <clears throat> although the Bible never makes a big deal about it. It makes more of a deal about the people who are healed because that's what's striking in our world. A world where death 
and sickness and sin are kind of the norm. Excellent. Uh, should we be all? Uh, should we always be praying for miracles? How do we align that with praying for God's will to be done? Jesus, Jesus did both. <laughs> um, I, I see one case where somebody, a, a leper, says to him, "If you're willing, you can make me clean." With Jesus, I see it as he he knows he's supposed to go to the cross, and he says. Father, if there's any other way around this, but nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. I think it's always implicit, whatever we pray for, your will be done, because obviously if it's not his will, he's not going to do it. (laughs) But I think that's another factor where miracles happen more in some places than in others. They're not guaranteed, but they do happen more often when you pray for them than when you don't. So, yeah. Thank you. The final question, and there were other questions that came through, and I'll encourage you to speak to Dr. Keener over over supper. Uh, This one question says, why do some Christians believe that miracles were given to authenticate the apostles, and with the completion of Scripture, we don't see or need miracles? It's, it's kind of a selective approach to spiritual gifts in the New Testament because Paul never makes a distinction between what we call supernatural and what we call natural gifts. They're all supernatural. They're all energized by the Holy Spirit. In terms of, uh, yeah, I think, I think some church traditions tend to amputate certain members of the body and then some other church traditions tend to pile up all the amputated members. And in neither, in neither case is the body whole. I mean, ideally, I mean, you can function without an arm or a leg, but ideally it's, it's great if you can have the whole body functioning together. In, in the case of uh, what the miracles are meant to authenticate, Peter in Acts chapter 3 says, it's not by our own power or holiness that this man stands before you whole, but by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, who, by the way, you crucified, and then he goes on and preaches the gospel to them. Acts chapter 14, um, verse 2 or 3, it says that God was bearing witness to the word of his grace that was being preached by the apostles. We still preach the same message of grace, and God still bears witness to the message of his kingdom and the message of his grace. 